it turns out that your neurogenic rate, meaning the rate at which you make new brain cells and you make new connections, is the most important biomarker for brain health that most people have never heard of. So when the brain is alive, when it is moving, when it is has a high neurogenic rate, we feel good. Life feels good. It's like we are floating downstream. We're moving, but we are cognitively um, figuring things out very quickly. We're sharp. We are emotionally robust. Life just feels good. When this neurogenic rate slows down, when the brain's movement slows down, when it gets sluggish, that's when we see anxiety, we see depression, and we see cognitive decline. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. I was so excited to have Brant Courtright today on Collective Insights. He is a professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies and an author and clinical psychologist. He's written four books, and we dove today into his newest book, Holistic Healing for Depression, Anxiety, and Cognitive Decline. Brant and I share so many interests that span the gamut from diet and lifestyle and how that relates to brain function, as well as psychology, interpersonal relationships, spirituality, plant medicines, and meditation. So this was a huge pleasure. I could have talked to Brant all day long. I hope that you'll join us for the exciting hour where we dive deep into neurogenesis, neuroplasticity, and how to optimize brain function. Welcome to Collective Insights. I'm your host today, Dr. Heather Sanderson, and I'm so pleased to be joined by Brant Cartwright. He is an author and our areas of interest overlap immensely, so I can't wait to dig in and pick his brain about how to promote neurogenesis, cognitive function, and reduce anxiety and depression. So timely, so important. Thank you for being here today, Brant. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So I want to launch right in to this overlap of anxiety, depression, and cognitive decline. I think a lot of us don't put cognitive decline in that mental health space, but you can't really separate them either. So tell me why you put them together. Good question. Um, for one thing, um, the three these three things are skyrocketing compared to what they were 50 years ago. Um, rates of anxiety, depression, and cognitive decline, um, particularly even in young people, is way higher than it was. So 50 years ago, compared to now, um, school kids now have eight times higher greater rates of anxiety, five to eight times greater rates of depression. And that's not through better diagnosis. That's with the same standardized tests that were used in the 60s. Um, one in four women between 20 and 45 is on an antidepressant. Um, rates of Alzheimer's are five times what they were back then. So these problems are skyrocketing. That's one reason. The other reason is that there are common brain mechanisms behind all three. There are different psychological mechanisms, but there are common brain mechanisms. So this is really a holistic approach, meaning looking at us as psychophysical beings. Um, we can't be reduced to one or the other. We're psychophysical beings. And to make it even more clear, we are multidimensional beings, meaning we exist on different levels physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. And all four of those levels get integrated by the self, right? Our, our psyche integrates all of those. And we experience all four of those levels through the brain, right? Everything we experience, we experience through the brain. So this is really looking at how a kind of weakened brain is susceptible to these things and how a fragmented, fragile self is also open to these things, more vulnerable to these things. And so it's really trying to heal both sides of who we are, 
the brain side, the physical side, and the psychological side as well. You talk about a very comprehensive approach. I've heard you say that you can't just take one or two pieces. You really need to do it all to get the most benefit. I, of course, agree. Uh, but I'm curious because this is very, you know, this is in contrast to our reductionistic sort of scientific approach where we want to see, okay, does this one thing help change this, this metric? And you and I have both come to this conclusion that, no, really, we need to embrace the mind, the body, the spirit, the society that we're in, the environment. How did you get there? Uh, um, <clears throat> well, I've been a transpersonally oriented therapist and professor for many years. <clears throat> so that really looks at consciousness more than anything. And so I've always been interested in the different levels of consciousness. And we can look at the psyche as simply different levels of consciousness. So we have this physical body, which is a physical level of consciousness that we walk around in and gives us sensory information. We have this emotional level where we get information from our emotional selves about the world and about people that we just don't get any other way. And also how we feel determines really the quality of our life. If we're feeling good, our life is good. If our, we feel bad, our life sucks. Um, mentally, how sharp we are is an important part of um, how we perceive the world and spiritually. So I've always seen it this way as a kind of, as a whole. And, you know, reductionism works really well for something like a broken leg where you can kind of set it, but it doesn't work very well in psychology. You know, like curing a neurosis, it's a very different thing, or healing a wound, or getting over a trauma. Those are very different things that happen on different levels, cognitive, spiritual, emotional, and somatic as well. So I've always been there, but I've been actually more on the psychological side than the physical side until recently, um, like depression, for example. Um, I was always taught that whether you believe it's a biological illness um, that then causes depression, or whether you believe psychologically it's behaving unskillfully that then causes the person to be depressed, and then that causes the brain changes. I was always taught it was a chicken or egg sort of thing. And I've come to actually think it's actually a chicken and egg thing. It's both together. Um, there is a kind of brain dysfunction, I think, that's happening right now. Um, I think there are more neurotoxins in the environment than have ever been in there before. You know, if you look up neurotoxins on Wikipedia, you get something like 200 pages of lists, and there's about 30 um, neurotoxins on each uh, page. So that's about 200 pages, that's about 6,000 neurotoxins that are in the environment. Um, we know about some of them, mercury, aluminum, arsenic, lead, um, but there are many, many, many more. And we don't really, we've sort of just sleepwalked into this. Um, I think it's kind of like death by a thousand cuts. You don't notice one or two, or you don't even notice 20 or 30, but after 100 or 200, you start to falter. And you know probably better than almost anybody what some of these neurotoxins are and how they can affect the brain. Um, but there are also emotional neurotoxins. Um, there are mental spirit neurotoxins. There are spiritual neurotoxins as well. Um, but the brain is a big part of it. Um, you know, I began noticing that some of my most fragile clients were vegans. And that made me really, what, what's going on here? And also, I was a vegetarian for many years. And I began to be more and more etheric, a little bit too etheric. And when I started eating meat again, I began to come down into the world. I began to be more grounded. And it launched me, this is maybe 20 years ago, now, on a quest to really understand diet more. And so I've been really looking at how diet influences the brain, how diet really builds the brain and what some of the um, 
some of the minds are in this minefield of daily life of neurotoxins that really impact the brain. Um, and if I can just say one more thing about the brain. Um, so we think of the brain as a computer. That's often the analogy that's given, but it's a really bad analogy because the com a computer is a dead machine, it's static. The brain is not like a computer chip. That's dead. A brain is a living, growing, moving process. It's always in movement. It's always in motion. It's more like a big amoeba that's always making new connections with itself, new connections based on the environment. It's always growing new brain cells. <clears throat> you know, they've known about neuroplasticity called synaptogenesis for a few decades now, but they only discovered neurogenesis, the creation of new brain cells, about 20 years ago. And at first they didn't know the significance of it, but then they realized that the rate of neurogenesis and neuroplasticity has a big impact on your functioning. So they did a series of experiments with mice where they increased their rate of neurogenesis by five times. And what they found was that they created not quite super mice, but mice who were cognitively enhanced, who learned faster, who figured things out faster, and who were protected against stress, anxiety, depression. They were much more emotionally resilient. It turns out that your neurogenic rate, meaning the rate at which you make new brain cells and you make new connections, is the most important biomarker for brain health that most people have never heard of. So when the brain is alive, when it is moving, when it is has a high neurogenic rate, we feel good. Life feels good. It's like we are floating downstream. We're moving, but we are cognitively um, figuring things out very quickly. We're sharp. We are emotionally robust. Life just feels good. When this neurogenic rate slows down, when the brain's movement slows down, when it gets sluggish, that's when we see anxiety, we see depression, and we see cognitive decline. Because the common brain mechanism here is the hippocampus. The hippocampus is the one part of the brain that grows new brain cells. And the hippocampus is this funny crescent moon-shaped structure. Actually, there's two of them on the right and left side of the brain. We have two hippocampi. Half of the hippocampus is involved in processing new memories. The hippocampus doesn't store new memories. It processes them. It makes them. So when our neurogenic rate is high, we are learning new things. We're engaged. Um, memory underpins the whole sense of self, like in Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's massively attacks the hippocampus and new memories stop being formed. And when that happens, executive function goes, memory goes, the self goes. It's like the self just, it's like the rug gets pulled out from the self. Um, and the person's sense of presence goes as well. That's half the hippocampus. The other half is involved in emotion regulation, particularly the regulation of anxiety and depression. And so when neurogenesis and synaptogenesis rates are high, then we get protection against stress, against anxiety and depression, and we just feel good. So this common neurogenic rate with the hippocampus the whole brain, particularly synaptogenesis, but with the, hippoc the hippocampus in particular with neurogenesis, is a common brain mechanism that underlies anxiety, depression, and cognitive decline. And this neurotoxic environment that we're living in slows down the neurogenic rate. And therefore, just about everybody is living at a subpar level. Just about everybody is living at a rate <clears throat> where they are practically, I mean, much of the world is just freaking out right now. 
Um, and granted, we've had some tough times lately. But when your brain is functioning well, when you have radiant health in your brain, you're not freaking out. You're dealing with things. Setbacks happen, but you bounce back from them. I'm curious. You mentioned um, is it the hippocampus and these neurotoxins, and then you mentioned kind of these maybe social or spiritual mental toxins. So would that be, and what comes up for me is like social media, the news, the lack of connection, community, that those sorts of things can also be measured and would be influencing part of that sort of comprehensive view of what promotes neurogenesis and synaptogenesis versus doesn't. Exactly right. That's right. Um, Stress, for example, would be a, a neurotoxin when it's chronic. You know, we need a certain amount of stress. The brain actually thrives on moderate stress and short-term stress. That actually increases neurogenesis and synaptogenesis. The brain needs to be challenged. And with, when it's challenged, it then responds with its own potentials coming forth. The brain wants that. It wants to be engaged with the world like that. But that's not the kind of stress most people complain about. They complain about chronic stress. And chronic stress slows neurogenesis and synaptogenesis way down. Um, that also begins to cause inflammation. And inflammation in the brain also slows neurogenesis and synaptogenesis to a crawl. Um, are those markers we can use to measure synaptogenesis or neurogenesis? Would we be looking at inflammation as sort of a proxy for measuring that? Or can we, the clinician in me wants to know, can, what, how do I measure my own neurogenesis and my patients? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, synaptogenesis can be measured. They can actually do neuroimaging with that. It takes very expensive equipment to do it, but you can. Neurogenesis, on the other hand, we can only really measure in animals or we can measure it in people on autopsy. <laughs> um, you can, it, it's more phenomenological in a way. Um, if your rate of synaptogenesis is high, probably your rate of neurogenesis is high as well. Um, so we know that certain meditation forms, for example, increase synaptogenesis um, quite dramatically. Um, stressful relationships slow down this neurogenic rate. Um, belief systems that are toxic, like shouldism, perfectionism, things like this would be sort of mental neurotoxins. Um, but I think a big, huge part of this is the physical neurotoxins. Physical neurotoxins in the environment and particularly in our diet as well. Um, I want to go towards diet, and I'm hoping that that's part of why those mice were little superhero mice. So, yes. but I'd love to hear. You said there were five things that those mice did, or, or sort of five things they could toggle, levers they could pull. Is that how? Did I understand that right? I want to go through all of them. What are all of the things that we can do to be like those superhero mice? And I'm sure that diet is one of them. So let's go there yeah. first. Diet is a big part of this. Um, <clears throat> so they, they increase their neurogenic rate by five times. That's where the five comes from. Um, so they did this in a holistic way, right? In, in what they called an enriched environment where they had really good food, where they had an interesting environment to explore, where they had lots of friendly mice to, uh, to play with and to mate with. Um, they had a running wheel to exercise. Um, but clearly diet is a very big portion of this. So in the Holistic Healing book, I talk about the four pillars of the healthy brain diet. And I think of the four pillars as neurogenic, ketogenic, anti-inflammatory, and gut-friendly. And <clears throat> there's a healing phase and a maintenance phase. And in the maintenance phase, it's still neurogenic, but you don't have to do it quite as much. It's not necessarily ketogenic, but it's, you know, as many carbs as you can handle. And, but it's still anti-inflammatory. And, it, and as many, I just want to clarify, as many carbs or as many fats? As many carbs. So I think that 
so the ketogenic diet is low carb and high good fat. And for the healing phase of the diet, I think that's a really important part, really helpful for pretty much everybody. But once the brain has healed and strengthened, then if a person is not insulin resistant, they can go back to eating carbs. Um, so it's, it's really a matter of that. So <clears throat> let me just say one quick thing about one major neurotoxin that probably your audience already knows about and you know about, but just to put it out there, which is glyphosate, Roundup, right? 93% of Americans have measurable glyphosate levels in their bodies. This was a few years ago. It's Are you sure it's not 100%? By now, it's probably 100%. So this, was, this was a few years ago. I'll just speak from my uh, clinical experience because I run glyphosate levels through Great Plains Labs on almost uh -huh. all of my patients, and I have not yeah. found one that's at zero. They are yeah. usually a person who eats organic, who really aims, maybe eats out a couple times a week, but buys all organic is around 0.5 to 0.7. I have a patient who has, unfortunately, ALS. She's at 3.7. And then the highest I've ever seen was at 5.8 and someone with severe dementia. Mm -hmm. So my the trend in my clinic definitely um, is that the higher those levels are, the lower the cognitive function. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, because... As you well know, and maybe your audience knows this too, maybe I'm just preaching to the choir here, but glyphosate, which is you know everywhere, 300 million pounds every year in the United States, it's in the dust and in the rain of people living in the Midwest and the South. Um, it's in so many foods. Um, unless you eat purely organically and you live a clear, clean life in an unpolluted part of the world, and even then, you probably have some glyphosate levels, as you're saying. But it's an antibiotic that kills off the microbiome. It also opens up the tight junctions in the intestine. And when the tight junctions, the tight junctions keep out the bad stuff and let in the good stuff. But when they open up, they let in the bad stuff. And so it lets in neurotoxins into the body, which creates inflammation. And the blood-brain barrier has the same signaling mechanisms for the tight junctions. And so when we do glyphosate, it also opens up the tight junctions of the blood-brain barrier, which also lets in toxins to the brain, which creates neurotoxins in the brain. So unless you're eating purely organically, which everybody should try to do, every bite of food you take is going to be neurotoxic to some degree. You are making yourself more anxious, more depressed, lowering cognitive function with every bite of food. It's crazy to think that we are poisoning ourselves like this. I mean, it's crazy to think that you can poison the earth, but you can't poison people, right? It's one big system. We're all going to get poisoned, of course. So that is just one big neurotoxin out there that has a big impact on all of this. I'm so um, grateful that you brought it up and explained the mechanism because I think when you're standing there at the grocery store and it's you know a dollar more for the organic versus the conventional, it's hard to sort of motivate or you're really hungry and you know the, the shop that has organic takeout is a little bit further or it's gonna be a longer wait. You know, it's hard to maintain that motivation to go the extra step, to pay the extra dollar to wait the extra time to get organic. And it's easy to justify because everyone is consuming conventional food. And so, and, and also just convincing your family, whoever does the shopping in your household, your parents, your, your kids, if they're out of the house, that they should also be making the investment. Um, I think the reminders of the mechanism go so far in the decision-making, right? And, mm -hmm. and I think we're all trying to do a little better all the time. Um, so I appreciate that you took the time to explain that. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. So to the healthy brain diet, um, in the healing phase, um, you know, I coined this term weakened brain syndrome, um, to indicate that I think pretty much everybody in the culture has some degree of brain impairment because of the standard American diet, because of all the toxins that are around. And so some degree of healing the brain and strengthening the brain, I think, is really helpful for pretty much everybody. Um, 
and particularly if you have any of these symptoms of anxiety, depression, or cognitive decline. So the healing phase, these four pillars, neurogenic, ketogenic, anti-inflammatory, and gut-friendly. So neurogenic, there are a number of foods and supplements that increase the rate of neurogenesis and synaptogenesis. And they've discovered this through a lot of experiments with mice and monkeys and dogs. Um, all mammalians have the same similar mechanism. So certain things like, probably most people have not heard of some of these, like luteolin, apigenin, quercetin, um, hesperidin, um, omega-3s are really good. There's a neuroscience researcher, um, Christine Theray in London, who increased neurogenesis by 40% simply by adding omega-3s. Omega-3s are the fundamental building block of the brain. You know, 60% of the brain is fat, and of that, a third to a half of it is DHA, which is one of the three omega-3 fatty acids. We need a lot of good building material to be building the brain continually. The brain is always under construction. It's always you know, in motion. It's always deconstructing itself, um, taking down unused connections, and then building up new connections. And it needs a lot of DHA to do this. If a person has high levels of inflammation, then it's good to have probably a two to one ratio of EPA to DHA in your omega-3. But if your inflammation levels are fine, then a one-to-one -one ratio. And probably most people can use four grams a day um, of that. Um, the book goes into about 30 different um, compounds, bioflavonoids, polyphenols, that increase this. Um, hesperidin is a great one because when you increase the rate of neurogenesis and synaptogenesis, the brain prunes about 50% of these pretty quickly. But hesperidin keeps the new brain cells and new connections alive. So you get almost 100% survival rate. So I'm curious so, about that because the the pruning, I mean, just like gardening, right? The pruning is helpful in some ways. Is there yeah. evidence in hesperidin, right, that yeah, that... Yeah. that by overriding that pruning mechanism, are we getting higher functioning brain cells or syn synapses? Yes, yes, because they mostly don't know whether these neurogenic compounds, whether they create new brain cells faster or whether they keep existing new brain cells alive. You want to do both. Um, if you increase the rate of new brain cells, and the rate of new connections, you increase your neurogenic rate, but if you're undoing it by quite a bit, you're right, some degree of pruning is necessary when we don't use it. But if we are engaged, if we're doing a whole brain approach here, where you are using your brain, you want to keep those new connections alive if possible. And so hesperidin, hesperidin, you know, is not very bioavailable, but there's a form of it called methylchalcone, which is five times more bioavailable than regular hesperidin. Which, so I'd recommend doing that. But that keeps the survival rate at a very high level. Um, we also want to not eat certain things which slow down neurogenesis and synaptogenesis. So we want to not eat like vegetable oils that we've cooked in. We don't want to do that. Um, a high sugar diet will cut your neurogenic rate in half. Um, I'm curious about the role of insulin in that and how insulin can essentially be a neurotoxin. Yeah. Um, it turns out that higher insulin levels, higher blood sugar levels, decrease our neurogenic rate also. Um, <clears throat> this gets into the second phase, the, the ketogenic phase where about 80% of the population in America has some degree of insulin resistance. Um, <clears throat> you know, they're talking about um, Alzheimer's as type 3 diabetes, that it's, it's a failure of um, sugar metabolism. Um, so a ketogenic diet 
involves using ketones for fuel rather than sugar. Um, so it turns out that the brain, although it always needs a little bit of sugar, it actually prefers ketones as fuel. And when ketones are running the brain, when you are in a ketogenic state, it feels like you are operating at a higher level. It's like the brain is just sort of humming along. There's a Harvard researcher who'd recently died named Richard Veach, who looked at ketone metabolism um, in the heart muscle and discovered that the uh, mitochondria of the heart operate at 28% more efficiency with ketones over sugar. And neurons have a similar kind of uh, mitochondrial function as heart, heart muscle does also. So if you can imagine your brain operating 28% greater capacity, um, you've had Bredesen on, and he's using the ketogenic diet with Alzheimer's. Yeah, and it's what we by. use at Marama, and what and I suggest to my patients. So I have watched it over and over. I mean, I've been moved to tears so many times watching people just sort of come back from this foggy haze where they weren't themselves back into more certainly cognitive function, of course, but just even more energy, more and the anxiety and depression also resolve. Yeah, fantastic. That, that's right. Um, to see a client go from being pretty anxious all the time to feeling much more steady, much more calm or depressed, same thing. Um, there are studies now underway with anxiety and depression. Right now, it's just sort of clinical anecdotal evidence. But um, in my experience, these can be very powerful as well. Um, the next part is anti-inflammatory. So another thing that anxiety, depression, and cognitive decline have in common is high rates of inflammation. Um, depression is also an inflammatory disease process. Anxiety is also. Um, and we know about cognitive decline as well. And there are a number of natural compounds that you can eat as part of your diet to lower your inflammatory levels. A good blood test to have is a high sensitivity CRP or C-reactive protein. It's a general inflammatory marker. And if your rate, if your level is 0.5 and above for a male or 1.0 and above for a female, it would be really good to bring those rates down. <clears throat> Inflammation is behind all of the chronic diseases, it seems like, or most of them, and certainly behind one of the factors behind Alzheimer's and cognitive decline. Um, many people are now treating depression not only with um, SSRIs, but also with anti-inflammatory medication because there's a clear inflammatory process going on for most people, not and everybody. Well, and inflammation, whenever there's an inflammatory process going on, at least for me clinically, it makes me beg the question, well, well, why? Inflammation is a response and it's actually a very healthy, natural response unless it's not, right? Unless it's out of balance. And it's typically in response to a lot of the things that we've already discussed, toxic exposure, high sugar diets, and there can be a litany of things that can contribute to that. But I, I would just, I think I would argue that it's not inflammation that's the cause, but it's whatever caused the inflammation right, and right, inflammation right. is part of the manifestation. Good point. Good point. That's right. That's right. We want to get to the root to it, of it. That's right. But once it's high and chronic, we also want to bring it down. Um, and there's a number of compounds to do that. Curcumin, um, green tea extract, um, omega-3s, um, black cumin seed extract, um, chart ter or tart cherry extract. Um, again, the book goes into over a dozen of those. And then finally, gut-friendly. Um, we know that cognitive function and emotional function has a lot to do with the health of our gut. When we do conventional food, we are killing a lot of the, um, a lot of the microbiome. Um, in indigenous cultures, the microbiome, there are about 20,000 to 30,000 different strains. In the West, with all the courses of antibiotics and everything, most people have about 10,000. 
Some people have as few as 500 or 1,000, which is really bad, um, really bad for the immune system, but also bad for emotional health as well. Um, <clears throat> they did, so we want to, first of all, in, uh, restore gut integrity, and we want to increase the microbiome. And there are a number of strains of probiotics which have been shown to reduce anxiety, reduce depression, and increase cognitive function. They did a series of studies with uh, mice that were bred to be fearless and um, just would explore anywhere. And they had another group of mice that was bred to be anxious and scared and not go anywhere. And what they did was they changed the microbiome of each mice and they transplanted it into the other mice. And when the mice that were fearless got the microbiome of the anxious mice, they became anxious and fearful. And when the genetically bred anxious mice got the microbiome of the fearless mice, they became fearless and started exploring everywhere. So the microbiome trumps genetics. It actually turns on the epigenetics the epigenetic switches that cause a certain degree of emotional distress or health. So the health of our microbiome is also really important in this. I'm glad you mentioned genetics. The In terms of the diet, there are ApoE4 genetics in particular, where we start to worry about fat metabolism. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of discussion in the field, I think, my understanding at least is that we're still trying to understand exactly what it means in terms of the best diet for someone who is predisposed to genetics or genetically to, to Alzheimer's, but we're also saying that a high fat diet is the best diet to prevent or to reverse Alzheimer's. Do you can you square that circle? I can't. I can't. <laughs> that that one is uh, that one is I think still too much in process to say. Um, it's a great question though. Yeah. So you said you said healthy fats. You did make a distinction there. And I would love your list of what's on the good side and what's on the bad side. Okay. So um, the usual culprits probably, monounsaturated fats, um, olive oil, avocados, um, omega-3s. Most people need probably, again, four or five grams of those per day. We also need omega-6s, but we don't need very many of them which is why it's better to eat, for example, grass-fed meat over conventional meat because it has a much more ideal omega-3, omega-6 balance. Um, so we need saturated fats, and we don't need too many unsaturated fats except for um, the omegas. Well, it's Omega-7s can be good, too, also as an anti-inflammatory. What's an example um, of an omega-7? It comes from fish. Um, and it's a provenol. It's a, it's an extract now. Um, that one's new to me. Thank you. And yeah. what about coconut oil? That is one. Coconut oil is great. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Some people yeah. put that on the bad list occasionally. I know. I know. Um, it, I think that's sort of old school at this point. But yeah, these are those medium chain triglycerides that are right. saturated, that are fully saturated, but they behave very differently. Yeah. So healing the brain is really important for almost everybody. But we also want to heal the psyche as well, right? There are different psychological processes going on with anxiety, with depression, with cognitive decline. And <clears throat> so the, I realize we, we don't have a lot of time to go into this, but I want to just do a nod to that there's many reasons for people to feel anxious. and. What I've discovered is that healing the brain and strengthening the self, it's best if we can do both together. Some people only need one. Some people can just do therapy and they're fine. Or some people can just change their diet and that changes how they feel emotionally. For, I think, the majority of people, it's good to do both. But I'm kind of surprised at how many people, just as they heal their brain, they actually begin to feel a whole lot better. 
the self becomes more solid, becomes more coherent, more cohesive, just as the brain begins to function better. Um, and the two go together. As the self heals and becomes more coherent, more, co more cohesive, that also helps brain function. Um, when the self is more fragmented, that causes more stress, that causes more bad behavior, which causes more stress, that impacts brain function, that creates more inflammation. Um, so the two go together. Having good brain function and good psychological function, and when either one of those is altered, it also affects the other, because we are, again, one whole being. Exercise is another big piece of what you talk about in the book. Um, are there certain types of exercise that work? I hit the, the high-intensity interval training is one that I've heard you talk about, and the answer you had around how beneficial that was surprised me. Mm, yeah, yeah, right, because it's all the rage these days, um, the high-intensity interval training. Um it turns out that the best form of exercise for the brain is aerobic exercise, right? Aerobic exercise meaning get you breathing hard, breathing fast. So running, fast walking, dancing, um, walking up stairs, walking up a hill, biking, swimming, um, all of this just acts like um, miracle grow for the brain for the brain cells. And, but you need to do it for 20, 30, 45 minutes. Um, and it's good if you can do that a few times a week. You don't have to start off, start off slowly, but then build up. It turns out the high intensity training, high intensity interval training, seems to have zero effect on the rate of neurogenesis and synaptogenesis. Um, and they think that maybe just because the stress, the too much stress outweighs the benefits of the, of the aerobic exercise. They're not quite sure why that is the case. Also, strength training seems to be very important also for, particularly for cognitive decline. Um, simply lifting heavy things in a balanced way is a good pre strength and grip strength is an important predictor of longevity. Um, as well as helping cognitive function. Not as much as aerobic exercise, but still as an important addition to it. I'm curious if you could answer one question around cognitive function, anxiety, depression, kind of this constellation that you see. What would it be if you had all the finances in the world to fund a study? What would be uh, the question you would ask? I would wonder, and I... I would bet on this, that the natural ways of increasing neurogenesis, ketogenesis, anti-inflammatory response, and gut health, the natural ways of enhancing those, would those, um, how do those compare to what medical science has in terms of drugs? I bet they would win by a landslide. But I think that would be the study I would like to do. That there are so many ways of naturally enhancing this neurogenic rate. Um, I mean, that's how it turns out antidepressants work. They don't work by increasing serotonin. There is no serotonin deficiency in depression. Um, that's a great marketing tool, but it turns out to be a myth. The way the antidepressants work is by the increase in serotonin, that increases the neurogenic rate, and it's the increased neurogenic rate which really eliminates the depression. Awesome. So I think there are just so many natural ways of doing this that coming up against conventional pharmaceuticals I think that would be a great test to do. I'd love to hear your insights on sleep because this mm. is definitely something I've seen play out um, in clinically that when people get on a CPAP, you know, they start getting oxygen at night, their sleep is not as mm. disrupted for whatever reason, whether it's apnea or something else, but that that dramatically shifts cognitive function and mood. I'd yeah. love to hear your insights on, on sleep and sleep quality in particular. Um, 
that also is huge in this. Um, it, it looms large in all three of these. When we don't get in good enough sleep, there is a measurable drop in cognitive decline the next day. There's also a measurable increase in emotional reactivity. We are more stressed. There's higher levels of cortisol and stress hormones in our system. We don't think as clearly. We make poor decisions. Um, so sleeping well is really important for um, not only brain function, but emotional function as well, and cognitive function. You know all about, no doubt, the glymphatic system and how the brain actually kind of gets a shower or a bath at night, particularly the end hours of sleep, and just clears out, particularly the amyloid plaque that's built up during the day. Um, so when we don't get enough sleep, and we just don't feel right. Partly, we're just feeling the neurotoxins that haven't had a chance to clear out of the brain. Um, now, sleep is hugely important for brain health and emotional health. Yes. And with depression in particular, some people associate that with actually being more tired and sleeping more. Mm -hmm. And that seems to perpetuate then the depression. Yeah, that's right. Depression affects vegetative functions, meaning sleep and eating. So we either eat more or less or we sleep more or less. So some people who are depressed can't sleep at all. Other people find it hard to get out of the bed. Um, and we want to encourage them <clears throat> to indeed get out of the bed after eight or nine hours. Um, too much sleep is not helpful. That That's almost as bad as not enough sleep. That's right. With your interest and in, in specialty, kind of your your area of expertise being around the psychology, um, I'm curious about your and also spiritual um, your experience professionally with plant medicines. Do you encourage mm -hmm. that? What do you think mm -hmm. of the new research coming out around psychedelics, and do you think they have much to offer? I think there's a huge potential there. Um, in the book, I only talk about um, legal neurogenic enhancers. Um, it's quite clear that the plant medicines have now been shown to be neurogenic. They increase um, neurogenesis and synaptogenesis. Um, and it's also quite clear from the clinical studies that they have great potential with uh, PTSD in particular, with MDMA, with uh, depression for a number of these compounds. Um, and it's unclear whether some of that um, success has to do with increasing their neurogenic rate. Um, but I think it does go beyond that. Clearly, um, in opening up consciousness, in um, entering into new states where we can encounter parts of ourselves and integrate them in ways that we now have the capacity to do, um, these, these compounds have tremendous therapeutic value. Um, with MDMA in particular, for example, it, it opens the heart chakra. I mean, it, it, you can literally feel the heart chakra open. And as that happens, there's greater capacity to simply hold emotional experience, emotional experience that we couldn't hold before. And so with PTSD, the results are nothing short of astonishing. Um, it's a therapeutic drug par excellence, I think. Yeah. And what is your experience? Ketamine is one that is legal at the moment and yeah. not a plant medicine, but kind of on yeah. the spectrum. Do you have yeah. patients or clients or have you professionally seen the potential in, in that? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm a little more guarded about that simply because it's a dissociative anesthetic as opposed to a true psychedelic. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and I think that the results from the studies I've seen show that it's much better when it's paired with therapy. Most of the ketamine clinics simply give the ketamine and it can be good, but then they have to do it again in three weeks. And so I think with the dissociative anesthetic, you may be numbing things, but unless you're also working to actually work through the issues, it's going to be a, just a different kind of psychiatric drug that you have to keep on taking. Mm. If you can take it in a 
more kind of psychedelic dose and do it in a therapeutic environment so you can begin to work with the material therapeutically, then I think it has a lot more potential. But most of the ketamine clinics just give low dose and they just keep coming back again and again and again. So I'm a little more circumspect about that one. And meditation, you mentioned early on and its role in neurogenesis. Uh, what There are lots. I mean, you can pick your flavor of meditation these days. Yeah. Are there certain types or approaches to meditation or mindfulness that you've seen be particularly effective? Yeah, there's been a lot of research in this area. Um, and I think that two major forms of meditation have come forth as having powerful effects on the brain, on, on increasing the neurogenic rate in particular. And these are heart-opening practices and mindfulness practices. So um, heart-opening practices are particularly strong in traditions of the personal divine, like Christianity, Judaism, Islam, the bhakti traditions of India, and also as a preliminary practice in the mindfulness traditions, um, Buddhism, particular. And these involve different devotional practices, different practices to um, increase our capacity for gratitude, for love, for compassion, um, devotional prayer. Um, there's many different forms of this, but they all serve to open the heart, to sort of break away and purify some of the veils and some of the impediments that keep the heart closed and contracted. Um, so those have been shown in many, many experiments to be quite powerful, have their effects on, quite powerful effects on the brain. And the other um, major form is mindfulness practices, both concentration practices and open awareness practices. So a concentration practice, say on the breath, where you simply focus on sensations of the breath, and allow all other things to simply pass away and keep coming back to the sensations of the breath. That'd be like a concentration practice. There's many others. Or open awareness practice, where you're simply aware of everything that arises. And you try not to grasp onto any particular thought or feeling or sensation, simply to allow it all to arise and pass away. Both of these practices bring us more and more into the here and now more and more into the present. And as we come into the present, the brain becomes more alive. We become much more awake to our environment, to our internal environment, to our external environment. And that is exactly what a high neurogenic rate wants and brings about, that kind of awake response, right? Because our brain is always taking in the environment always changing to every little change in the environment. Every change we see in our environment brings about a change in the brain. Otherwise, we wouldn't register it. So yeah, these two practices are hugely helpful. And that goes uh, with this idea that stress, you know, there have been studies that show that our memories decrease when we are under stress. We, we aren't good at forming them. We aren't good at recall. So having one of these, sort of the mechanism by which the meditation is working, is it just that it decreases stress or increases our resilience to stressors? Or is there another mechanism at play there? That's a really good question. I would assume there's another mechanism at play, which is simply our spiritual being at the center of everything, um, our radical aliveness at the center of our brain, of ourself, um, that wakes up. That has a chance to come forth, to beam forth. That are, that radiant brain health and spiritual health are intimately linked. Um, <clears throat> yeah, um, I mean, stress clearly has a big, I mean, chronic stress has a big negative impact on the brain. And particularly when it's early on in life, um, PTSD or chronic stress early on in life, whether it's abuse, whether it's an accident, whether it's um, alcoholism, um, whether it's separations of different kinds, um, may, sexual abuse, there can be so many forms of early stress. And that actually can shrink the hippocampus. Some people with very high amounts of stress have a 25% smaller hippocampus. 
which is pretty astonishing when you think about it. And so when a person like that grows up, it's like their whole nervous system is on red alert, on high alert. It's like, of course, there are going to be just high stress hormones going throughout their body. And it's going to be very hard to feel relaxed. It can happen. Um, but I think it takes healing the brain and also some kind of work with PTSD, some trauma-informed work. Mm -hmm. We're seeing that trauma is actually much more widespread than we'd ever thought even 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, I'll say that it, unintentionally that has become a cornerstone of my practice just out of purely out of need of what my patients, what's going to help them get better. And I find that people are physically, emotionally, mentally much more susceptible to, to disease, to all of these chronic processes if they experienced early childhood trauma of any kind. And some sort of healing is absolutely necessary, some sort of rewiring of that, what you were just describing, of that just being on fire. Um, and choosing, I think in adulthood, choosing to have some neurological patterning that does serve you, it's a, it's a difficult um, path, but one worth taking. Do you have favorites there? Um, I, I do have a few favorites. Um, I think that the somatic approaches are really important because when we are traumatized, what happens is that it's overwhelming experience that we can't integrate. And so what the person does in trauma is they dissociate, right? They, they move into an astral plane. They, they move into, the, into their heads. They leave their body and they move into a mind space. And so healing that dissociation is an important part of healing trauma. Having the person be able to come back into their body come back into their senses so they can really see the world around them once again. They can really feel emotion in their body once again. And so I think the somatic approaches, sensory motor work, HACOMI, bioenergetics, um, there's many different somatic approaches which I think are really helpful in this. Um, EMDR, I think, is also really a helpful form. Um, and clearly, MDMA is... Uh, I noticed you had Rick Doblin on earlier. Um, you know, when two-thirds of the people who have had PTSD for an average of 17 years don't have it a year later after three sessions, that's pretty impressive results. Um, so hopefully in the next year or two, that's going to become much more widely available to people. So we've covered a lot of ground here. I'm in, I'm impressed with your breadth of expertise, right? And mm -hmm. and again, that comprehensive approach. You and I align so much on that idea that we've really got to address each of these pieces. That we can we can't separate the person into a body, a spirit, and a mind. We've really got to put them back together if we want to be successful. What we haven't really covered was is you mentioned it a bit, but mental. Mental exercises, maybe. And so there are things like, um, there's several online, luminosity, excuse me, is the one that I'm stumbling over. So there's different ways, learning a new language, you know, keeping your job into your 70s and 80s just so that you get the mental stimuli. So I'm wondering, mm -hmm. do you have a formula for what would work best for neurogenesis to maintain cog cognitive function from a mental perspective? Yeah, good question. So... <clears throat> It's quite clear that mental stimulation increases neurogenesis and neuroplasticity. And a lack of mental stimulation slows it way down. People who watch more than three or four hours of television every day have slower rates of neuroplasticity. They actually have measurable rates of cognitive decline. So the brain wants to be learning new things, wants to be engaged. So the key is lifelong learning. Um, and that's one reason people keep their jobs. That's, that's great. But even if you retire, um, the idea would be to keep learning, keep doing new things. The people who retire um, and do nothing experience a very 
rapid and dramatic uh, cognitive decline. People who learn new skills, who reinvent themselves, who um, develop new interests that they didn't before, they do not experience that cognitive fall off. Um, lifelong learning is the key, and there's so many ways to do it. It turns out that most of these video games and online, um, like Luminosity, the results are very, very poor in terms of overall cognitive function. It doesn't seem to generalize. Doing crossword puzzles helps you learn to do more crossword puzzles, but it help, doesn't help you do much of anything else. So you want to use your brain in lots of different ways, learning a new language, taking a new home, new way home from work, travel, um, which is hard right now, but um, even traveling around your town in different places, um, doing new things online, not just going to the same websites over and over. Um, writing is good, even if it's just email. Um, writing is really helpful for cognitive function. Um, talking with people talking about ideas, talking about movies, talking about TV shows or sports, talking about things, putting things into words is really, really helpful. So using our brain, not just passively consuming media, that is a killer for synaptogenesis and for neurogenesis. I think you and I both agree that when it comes to genetics, diet and, out, and lifestyle outweigh any genetic potential. Now, what about, so if you're at a, at a genetic disadvantage, we can make decisions that override that. What about societal or sort of these constructs, you know, people who are have less resources, less money, so if you're poor or uh, minorities, do you think that there is a predisposition there that maybe can't be overridden. And then we've already talked about early childhood trauma. These are things you can't choose, right? Your genetics, your race, your, you know, where you were born, whether or not you experience early trauma, how much, how much money you have to some degree, especially growing up. Do you feel like those things influence cognitive function, depression, and anxiety in a way that can, can be overridden you're raising a, a great point here, which is just how things like economic inequality and systemic racism have huge um, public health and public mental health consequences. Um, these things are bad for the brain for people who experience this. And the brain is incredibly plastic neuroplastic um, regenerative. So I do think that there is a great deal of possibility for people. I think just about everybody can come back and even go further than they were originally in terms of brain function. Um, unless there's been a lot of severe damage, like for example, severe Alzheimer's, where a person's, they've already lost a lot, many brain cells. I think that's, that's a harder that's a harder um, path to come back from. Still possible to some degree for many people, but unless you're there, I think there are huge possibilities for re brain regeneration and for emotional and cognitive regeneration. But it does take really um, a focus and a utilizing of resources that prioritize brain healing and brain health. And um, so, but if the hope is there, if the aspiration is there, if the drive is there, absolutely. I think that trauma can be healed, the brain can heal and strengthen. Uh, For yeah. anyone, I appreciate yeah. that. Brand, it's been an absolute pleasure having you today. Uh, like I said before, I feel like my brain has been at the spa having a conversation with you. You are so calming um, and easy to learn from. So thank you for sharing your insights and your wisdom with us here today. Uh, you're welcome. It's been a real pleasure. I want to make sure every one of our wonderful listeners knows how to find your books and uh, how to find out more about what you have to offer. Okay. They're available on Amazon. Um, the latest one is Holistic Healing for Anxiety, Depression, and Cognitive Decline. 
And the previous one was the Neurogenesis Diet and Lifestyle. And my website is brantcourtright.com. Wonderful. Thank you again to Brant today for being here and always, as always to all of our listeners. This episode of Collective Insights was hosted by Dr. Heather Sanderson and produced by Jacqueline Loera. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.